You know, if you could go back and listen to anyone in church history and hear them preach live and in person, who would you choose? If you could get in a time machine, travel back in time, and hear anyone in the history of the church preach live and in person, who would you pick? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Maybe Patrick of Ireland, third century, as he preached the gospel to Irish savages, that'd be interesting. How about John Chrysostom, fourth century, whose preaching was so eloquent and profound that they literally called him the golden mouth? How about Augustine, fifth century, who preached his sermons with the power of poetry? Luther preached his sermons with the power of a freight train. Calvin of Geneva preached his sermons with the precision of a laser. And of course, we'd have to add Jonathan Edwards to the mix, wouldn't we? Who outside of Christ and the apostles preached what is undoubtedly the most powerful sermon in the history of the church known as sinners in the hands of an angry God. He's got to make the list for consideration. And of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Charles Spurgeon famously known as the Prince of Preachers. The question is, who would you go back in time and listen to live and in person? And certainly some of you, there are purists out there who are thinking, well, those guys are good, those guys are fine, but if I'm going to go back in time and listen to anyone, I'm going to go back and listen to Christ himself. To which I say, agree. 100%. If you're going to go back in time and listen to anyone preach, you go back and listen to Jesus Christ himself preach. But then that raises the question, okay, which sermon do we choose? Because without question, although every single sermon Christ ever preached was the best in history, there is one sermon in particular that has particular relevance to today. Because you understand that the one, there is one in particular that he preached to two disciples. On the road to Emmaus, and the thing about that sermon is that he preached it after he rose from the dead. Remember the scene? Freshly resurrected from a tomb in a glorified body, he preached prophecies about himself from the Old Testament to two disciples who had lost all hope that he was, in fact, the Messiah. And that sermon was so electric and so powerful that when it was all over, they turned and they said to one another, did our hearts not burn within us? As he opened the scriptures. My question is, what, what would it be like to hear that sermon? Because guess what? We don't have to imagine what that was like. Because this morning on Resurrection Sunday, we get to hear that sermon. Not an audio clip, of course. Not a transcript necessarily, but we get to see the prophecies that Christ preached about himself from the Old Testament that portrayed his arrival centuries before he ever even showed up to the planet. And again, the thing about that sermon that makes it so significant is that he preached it after he rose from the dead. Think about that this morning. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
He willingly crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside. He yielded his life to the jaws of death and he lived again to tell the tale. Jesus Christ is the living expositor. He's the resurrected preacher. And when he arose, when he appeared out of the mausoleum, he did so not as a zombie, not bleeding and in critical condition, but as a warrior, as a king, as a preacher who rose from the dead just as if he had never died in the first place. And that right there is the point of Resurrection Sunday. In fact, every Sunday is Easter Sunday, isn't it? Because we gather in the name of a risen king who when he comes again will claim his kingdom and he will put death to death forever. And if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith, you will be there to enjoy. So let's go to the scene. Eyewitness, first-hand testimony of the greatest miracle in history, the resurrection of Christ. And the scene you're about to see is split in two. One scene takes place at a cemetery, the other at a sun-baked desert road. One scene has women, the other has men. The ones were confused, the others were clueless. The one features an empty grave, the other scene features the one who resurrected from that grave. And believe it or not, get this, both scenes declare the infinite importance of the Word of God and what God has spoken and revealed. So let's go to the scene, shall we? The scene of the resurrection because all the hope, all the joy, all the power you need for everything in your lives is bound up in a Jerusalem grave that has no bones. Here's where we're going. This morning I want you to see two scenes. Two scenes of the risen king to make your heart burn with love and zeal to live for his glory. That's where we're headed. Two scenes of the risen king to make your heart burn with love and zeal to live for his glory. And scene number one is this. Number one, the empty tomb and the baffled disciples. The empty tomb and the baffled disciples. Because today is Sunday. And to say the least, it's been an interesting week, hasn't it? And when you look at the Gospels and you put them together, you see exactly how the week has transpired. First, there was the hysteria of the triumphal entry two Fridays ago. Remember that? When Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, unmistakably, unmistakably declaring himself as the King and Messiah. Finally, finally he's here. The King has arrived. The moment we've been waiting for. It's here. And yet, and yet that week didn't quite play out the way the disciples were expecting, were they? Because Matthew tells us that the first thing Christ did when he entered into Jerusalem was he went ballistic in the temple. He cleansed the temple for the second time in two years. He drove out the crooks and the thieves and the money changers who were ripping people off in the, in the temple. And then anticlimactically, the next few days just pretty much transpired in a series of heated showdowns with the Pharisees. Until finally on Thursday night, 
their last meal together, Christ lifts the bread, tears it apart, and says, this is my body, which is given for you. And the disciples don't know what to make of this. I mean, is this guy, guy going to take hold of his kingdom, or is he not? But then the unthinkable. The unthinkable, they take an after-dinner walk to a garden called Gethsemane only to be greeted by Judas leading a crowd of thugs and with their torches and pitchforks ready to arrest Christ, which they do. And then after a bogus illegal trial, a sleepless night, and an all-night escapade of being beaten within an inch of his life, the bloodthirsty crowds cry out for the crucifixion of the very one that they hailed as their king one week ago, and they did it. They killed him. They impaled him on a Roman torture device and with that last nail pounded into his flesh went their hopes and dreams of a kingdom and redemption. You remember what happened. The souls of the disciples were ripped and torn apart, weren't they? They ran away like quivering animals hiding in their homes, frozen with fear, paralyzed with despair. What were we thinking? How could we have been so stupid? That wasn't the Messiah. That wasn't the one we were waiting for. Shut the door. Turn out the lights. Party's over. That was Friday. Today is Sunday. Today is Sunday, and just like people today bring flowers to the grave to pay their respects, a group of faithful women who loved and followed Christ show up to the grave early on Sunday morning. And verse 10 tells us exactly who they were. It was Mary, literally the one from Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and others, and they go to the tomb, and yet what they found there when they got to the tomb was the whiplash of a lifetime. Look at verses 1 and 2. And on the first of the week, they came early to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. But they found the stone having been rolled away from the tomb. See that? More alarming than coming home to find your front door wide open, they come to the cemetery to find the tomb wide open. It had been sealed. It had been guarded, but nevertheless, there it was, a jar and moved to the side. And you can tell because of the spices that they hold in their hands, the only thing they were expecting to find that morning was a corpse. That's it. Because in that day, loved ones, they would anoint the body with perfumes and spices. And the fact that they showed up to the tomb with their perfumes and spices certainly showed their love and affection, to be sure, but it also showed their lack of faith, didn't it? In verse 3, into the tomb they walk, and the thing that they expected to see, they did not see, namely the body of the Lord Jesus. In verse 4, they don't know what to make of this. Luke says that literally they were at a loss concerning this. No explanation in a split second, a thousand possibilities crossed their minds, but apparently none of them were the right explanation because someone had to come along and give them the right explanation, which they do, verses 4 and 5. And it was while they were at a loss concerning this that, behold, two men appeared. 
in flashing clothing, dazzling apparel. And they became terrified and bowed their faces to the ground with mouths wide open, staring in silence at an empty grave. Behold, two men appear all of a sudden having what Luke calls literally flashing clothing. Dazzling apparel. These, men too, these men, two men show up with robes that gleam like snow in the sunlight, which means they're not from around here, as in not of this realm. And when they appear, you see it. The women fall on their face filled with terror because intuitively they know that these are angelic beings who have come to earth in the forms of men. And the thing about angelic beings making appearances is that sometimes it's good news, sometimes it's bad news. And although the news is good, notice that it begins with a question. Look at verses 5 and 6. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he literally was raised. That's very logical, isn't it? You don't raid the tombs to look for the living. You don't look inside a mausoleum to find the Messiah. A cemetery is a really silly place to find a Savior. He is not here, they say. And why would he be? Why would he be here? I mean, the one who raised others from the dead, can he not, could he not raise himself? The one who laid down his own life on his own authority, does he not have the authority to take his life back again whenever he darn well pleases? That's exactly what he has, and that's exactly what he did. And look, look again at some of the most beautiful words ever written in human history. Verse 6, he is not here, but literally he was raised. He is risen. He is risen. This is the resurrection. He's not here in the tomb because he has done the logically and the scientifically impossible. I mean, you understand that this moment right here, this is literally the deal breaker of human history. You realize that, right? Because think, think about for a moment those words that are so familiar to us. He is risen. What does that mean for us? What are the implications of the fact that Jesus Christ walked away, not from a car wreck, but from the clutches of death itself. Because as a kid growing up, I was infatuated by the magician illusionist David Copperfield. Remember him? And I remember watching as he physically passed through the Great Wall of China. As he literally made the Statue of Liberty disappear, I remember believing as a kid that he actually did those things, that he had real power, that he had real magic, that he was actually a magician, but he didn't actually do those things. He wasn't really a magician. All he was was an entertainer who did sleight of hand tricks that deceived the eye. Smoke and mirrors are the tool of his trade. This is not that. This is not that. The son of David is not a magician the Messiah. And he physically passed through the great wall of death. And the empty tomb is the real statue of liberty. 
He didn't appear to die. He actually died. And when he rose, it literally altered the course of history and everything in your lives today. And you know why, don't you? I'll give you six reasons. Six reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of our security and joy forever. If you have notes, they're in there. Number one. Number one. The resurrection is the historical verification that Christianity is absolutely true. I mean, if the resurrection is true, then everything else the Bible claims is true also. I mean, someone can debate, someone can raise questions, someone can question the resurrection all they want, but they have to explain the first-hand eyewitness testimony that watched him die and then saw him alive. Number two, the resurrection is the undeniable evidence that Jesus Christ is everything that he claimed to be, which is none other than God himself in human flesh. I mean, if the bones of Christ were in some Jerusalem grave somewhere, we would have a right to question that he is who he claimed to be. And yet, and yet, why the resurrection means everything is because it validates everything he said and everything he did. And who he is and who he was is God himself. Number three, the empty grave on Sunday morning is the verification that the death of Christ for sinners actually died did something. That it wasn't just a martyrdom. That it wasn't just a death for a noble cause, but that what it was, was an atonement. An atonement. You understand, the death of Christ is not good news. It's not good news. Unless. Unless. He defies the laws of science and raises himself from the dead and ascends to the right hand of the Father where he currently intercedes for us, which is exactly what happened. Number four. The resurrection of Christ is proof not only that he is the source of life, but that he is the cure for death. He is the cure for death. I mean, don't you see the fact that Christ blew up death from the inside out means that when we are attached to him by faith, we also will emerge triumphant from the grave. You understand this. Christ has already defanged the power of death. He's already done it. It has no bite. It has no sting. Death is not the end for you. And the implications of that are staggering and profound, aren't they? You want to know what the implications are? The implications are how you die and when you die are irrelevant. Did you know that? How you die and when you die are totally irrelevant. It is meaningless. Why? Because when Jesus Christ, the great king, returns at the rapture, he will call you by name. And all the bits and crumbs that used to be you will be supernaturally reassembled. And you will rise again from the grave just as if you had never died in the first place. Number five. That boneless tomb in the Middle East 
is what gives us the power and the courage for the Great Commission. And in particular, I'm talking about sharing the gospel with lost people. What do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? We are a resurrection people who worship a resurrected king. And one day we ourselves will be resurrected and we will enter into the kingdom. And what that does, what that does is give us the courage to face the loaded gun of a hostile culture and proclaim to them the greatest news in the universe. Finally, number six. Those words, he is risen, they are the essence of practical, aren't they? They're the essence of, of practical. What I mean is the resurrection, believe it or not, kills sins like anger and anxiety and fear and discouragement and even depression. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because the resurrection gives us perspective. It gives us objectivity. The resurrection, get this now, is proof that everything in your lives is going to be okay. It is. You see, we get angry and we get fearful and we get anxious and oftentimes we get depressed simply because we forget the bigger picture of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is unfolding a plan that has a resurrection at the end. Everything is going to be, is going to turn out perfectly in the end. And they lived happily ever after. That's why the resurrection is the foundation of infinite eternal joy. What are you even doing here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? That's a great question. And these ladies needed to be reminded that, that an empty tomb should not come as a surprise to them. Jesus said this very thing was going to happen. Look at verses 6 and 7. He is not here, they said, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying that it is necessary for the Son of Man to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and by the third day to be raised. You see, ladies, you knew this. You knew this. This was always the plan. Even before the foundation of the world, that Christ would willingly place himself into the clutches of his killers. He told you weeks ago, months ago, when he was still in Galilee, that he had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And notice, notice the details of this mild chastisement. Look what it says. The angels told them that the Son of Man, it was necessary to be delivered. Necessary. This had to happen. He had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men to save the souls of sinful men. There's no workaround, no, no shortcuts here. For you and I to get saved, mark my words, this absolutely had to happen. But then notice, notice the text, notice very carefully the title that the angels attribute to Christ. They call him the Son of Man. The Son of Man had to suffer. What does that mean, Son of Man? What does that title even mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means the hero has arrived. I mean, you hear the echoes with Genesis, don't you? There was the first man, then there is the Son 
of man. The Son of Man undoes what the first man did. What the first man ruined, the Son of Man was sent to recover. And according to Daniel 7, the Son of Man will come again, build his global kingdom, and be worshipped by the nations. And here he had to die by day three. He had to be raised. And in verse 8, the ladies realize, oh yeah, that's right. That is exactly what he said. In verse 9, they did the only logical thing there was to do was to go back and to tell everybody else what they had seen to tell the disciples. And interestingly, John chapter 20 tells us that the disciples, get this, were still huddled together in that upper room. Same one that they had, that they were in the night that they had their last meal together. There they are, depressed, licking their wounds, moping around this Airbnb, trying to figure out what to do with their lives now when all of a sudden these ladies blast through the door and at a thousand RPMs tell them everything that they had seen. And yet, verse 11, they didn't believe them. In fact, the text literally says that the words appeared like nonsense to them because that is nonsense. People don't raise from the dead. That's crazy. That's ludicrous. That is insane. And yet, and yet, insane though it sounded, there was still hope, wasn't there? There was the hope that maybe this could be true. That what they had seen Christ do the last three years opened the possibility that a self-resurrection, that that could be a thing that could take place. And so you see at verse 12, Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. John says that both he and Peter ran to the tomb. And look at the text. It says that when Peter got there, he stooped into the tomb, into the mausoleum, and all he saw there, get this, were the linen cloths alone. Now, not exactly the same as witnessing a resurrection, but it is a clue, isn't it? I mean, if someone stole the corpse then that means that they went through the gruesome trouble of unwrapping the body before they stole it. And not only that, but John 20 actually tells us that the wrappings were rolled up and, as it seems, arranged and neatly folded on the bench. It's weird and kind of gross. What that means is whoever took the body was certainly not in a hurry, but that doesn't add up. When thieves break in your car, they don't put things back the way they found them. The point is a grave robber, a tomb robber, is not a sufficient explanation, and Peter knows it. I mean, the Roman guards are gone. That's weird. The seal on the tomb is broken. That's weirder. The angels claim that they spoke to angels. That's weirdest. And most bizarre of all is a tomb without a body with no signs of foul play or criminal activity. In the end of verse 12, it simply says that Peter left the cemetery marveling to himself at the things which had taken place. Not quite the same as faith, but it was a start. And very soon it would change. So believers, Christians in the room, I have a question for you. We need to think about the implications of this. And the question is, the question is, have you grappled with the significance of the empty tomb? Have you grappled with this? 
Do you see the implications of the resurrection playing out in your life in a practical way? And I guess I'll just level with you, tell you what I really mean. My question is, do you fear death? Do you fear death? Don't get me wrong, no one wants to die. We want to live and we should. We're not a bunch of morbid sickos. But you know, you know, this last year has tested us in ways that we have not yet been tested. And it has at times revealed a fear in our lives that the resurrection is precisely designed to extinguish. The point is the resurrection of Christ. And therefore, your future resurrection gives us the courage to stare our mortality right in the face. To do what Christ calls us to do as the church, knowing that no matter what it is that kills us, be it COVID or cancer or a car wreck, that we will live again just as if we had never died. Do you feel this this morning? Do you fear death? Because you don't need to. That's practical. Non-Christians, non-Christians here, maybe even at home, my question for you is exactly the same. The question is, have you grappled with the significance of the empty tomb? Have you grappled with this? Because you see, the significance of that boneless grave in the Middle East is that Jesus Christ is not only alive, but that he rules And the punchline is the same king who went up to rule is the same king who will come down to rule. And mark my words, he will come down to rule. And so I just want you to know that if you do not belong to him by faith, it is not too late. It's not too late to take hold of the eternal life that he bought with his blood. It's not too late for you. The Son of Man had to be crucified so that sinners like us could be forgiven and redeemed and awakened and reconciled to the living God. Today is the day to stop messing around and yield to the King. Scene number two. Scene number two. The Emmaus Road and the Burning Disciples. The Emmaus Road and the Burning Disciples. Because you understand not everyone could stick around Jerusalem indefinitely. Right? People had their lives to live. They had their jobs to do. They had their families to take care of. And since their hopes were now dashed upon the rocks, they have nothing left to do but go home and pick up the pieces of their lives. Which is exactly what we see happening in scene number two. Look at verses 13 and 14. And behold, two of them on that very day were proceeding to the village called Emmaus, being about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they themselves were conversing with one another concerning all the things which had taken place. And notice the detail that Luke gives us here in verse 13. It's very subtle. He says, two of them were proceeding to Emmaus. Two of them. The question is, two of what? Who's the them? 
What, what group is it exactly that they belong to? And the answer is, they were among the disciples. You see, there was the 11. Then there was the group of faithful women. And then according to Acts chapter 2, there was like 100 other people who had stuck it out together till the very end. So these two guys were part of that larger group. And here we see that they're moving on with their lives because there's, there's nothing more to see here. There's nothing more to do. It's, it's game over. Or at least that's what it looked like on the surface. And here these guys are headed to Emmaus, a, a suburb of Jerusalem, seven miles outside of Jerusalem, seven miles away, which is a really important detail because, because it takes two hours and 20 minutes to walk the distance between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Two hours and 20 minutes. Duly noted. And just like the only thing people could talk about when 9-11 happened was 9-11, these two guys are talking about the headline news, which is the murder and execution of Jesus the Nazarene, who it seems they had temporarily given their lives to follow. The plot thickens here in verses 15 and 16. You understand, this is a major freeway. People would be traveling up and down this freeway between Jerusalem and Emmaus. And as these two men walked and talked and discussed and debated with one another the week's events, someone catches up behind them, eavesdropping on their conversation. Look at the text. And it was while they were conversing with one another and discussing that Jesus himself, after coming near, was walking along with them. But note, but their eyes were being restrained so that they could not recognize him. So here's these two guys discussing debating about the events of that week, and a stranger comes along, and we know it's Christ. Luke tells us it's Christ, but notice, notice again the commentary Luke gives. Their eyes were literally, the Greek says, being restrained so that they could not recognize who he was. You know what that is? That is sovereignty and foreshadowing. It's sovereignty and foreshadowing. By sovereignty, I mean God sovereignly blinded their eyes. He did not let them recognize him. I mean, these guys weren't idiots. They knew what he looked like, probably spent time in the same room with him. They knew what he looked like, but you see, God blinded their eyes from seeing because he wanted them to see, to see who he really was who he really was from the pages of Holy Scripture, which is exactly what was about to happen. But I said that this was foreshadowing. That's exactly what it is. You see, Luke is leaving here a little Easter egg, no pun intended, to look for a moment later on in the text, get this, when their eyes would be opened, because get this, when their eyes were opened and how their eyes were opened is the very point of the text. When their eyes were opened, how they were opened is what Luke is doing, Luke 24 is doing in your Bibles. So here's the stranger on the road to Emmaus, eavesdropping, listening in, and he does that super annoying thing that you should never do to people in public. He, he interrupts and helps himself to their conversation. Look at verse 17. What are these words which you are exchanging with one another as you walk? Because no question, the, the details of the story sounded huge, right? I mean, imagine the, the key words that you would hear if you were eavesdropping, double cross, 
betrayal, conspiracy, disappointment, murder, pretty dramatic stuff. And as if he didn't know, he asks for the details of the case, which they give. But notice how they respond. It says they stopped. And literally the Greek word means being of gloomy appearance. They were so heartbroken that they couldn't walk and talk at the same time. And one of the disciples named Cleopas, not out of anger, but amazement, asks him in verse 18, are you, are you alone dwelling in Jerusalem? And you don't know the news that has taken place? You don't know the headline news? You don't know what's happening? I mean, again, think three days after the Twin Towers crashed. I'm sorry, you live in New York, and you don't know what's transpired the last three days? To which Christ replies, what news? What, what things? Fill me in. Tell me everything. And in verses 19 and 20, they do. They said to him, the things concerning Jesus the Nazarene, who was a man, a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to the judgment of death, and they crucified him. There it is. There it is. And that's basically right. Those are the basic details of the case. He was a man. He was from Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet in word and deed. And it's true, it's true. The chief priests and the rulers conspired together to have him arrested, and then they killed him. That's true. Those were the basic facts of the case. And yet, did you notice what was missing? Lord, King, Son of God, Christ, Messiah, bread of life, light of the world, resurrection. Which means they thought he was only a man. He was just a prophet. At the end of the day, he was nothing more than a martyr who died for a good cause. And understandably, you can hear the disappointment in their voice as what happened to Christ was nowhere near their expectations of what they thought should happen to him because look at verse 21. But we were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we thought he was the Messiah. We, for, for moments when we thought he was the one, Every sign seemed to indicate that he was the one predicted by the prophets who would come and fulfill every promise God made to the people of Israel. Because the prophets do say, and they were right in their expectations. But the prophets say that God would send a redeemer, and a king, and Messiah, who would fulfill every single promise made to the people of Israel. You see, they were not wrong in their theology but they were bad readers selective readers and the end of verse 21 it says they just kind of <laughs> throw up their hands besides all this they say it's been three days it's been three days which is an interesting thing to say isn't it sort of like when you look for your glasses but they're on your face the whole time they mention three days, not because they're thinking of resurrection, but because the situation is hopeless. It's been three days. 
It's over. Game over. We are headed home. Nothing more to see here. And yet, and yet the glasses are on their face. Just mentioning the words, it's been three days, should have triggered in their minds that the game was categorically not over. Because Christ made it plain, didn't he, a year ago, more than a year ago. In fact, even at the very beginning of his ministry, that a death and a resurrection were in the cards for the Christ. And yet, and yet, we, we do not fault them too harshly, do we? Because a resurrection is scientifically logically, biologically impossible. And yet, they're not, they're not completely without hope, are they? I mean, discouraged, to be sure. Sinfully lacking faith, absolutely. But, but beneath the piles of cold ashes of their shattered expectations are a few glowing embers that... Maybe not all is lost. Maybe with a billion to one chance of winning the lottery, maybe there's still hope. Look at verses 22 and 23. But even some women among us amazed us. And after going early to the tomb, and although they did not find his body, they came speaking even of a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Okay, go on. And some of those who were with us departed to the tomb, verse 24, and they found exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. And at this point, they're still not thinking resurrection. I mean, they're intrigued to be sure. They're confused out of their minds, absolutely, but they're not assuming with any probable cause that a resurrection has taken place. That, that is biologically impossible. That does not happen. Or does it? Or does it? Because if it looks like a duck, and it talks like a duck, and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And if there's an empty tomb and 2,000 years of Old Testament prophecy that said that there would be a Messiah who would win it all in the end, it's probably a resurrection. That's exactly where the stranger goes. Look at verses 25 and 26. And he himself said to them, Oh, foolish and slow in heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? You fools! You ran the red light of the prophets. You totally missed the memo that the Christ, here it is again, had to suffer first and then enter his glory. Because first comes the gory, then comes the glory. First he must be killed, then comes the kingdom. First he had to be slaughtered, then comes the supremacy. 
And notice, and this is the whole point of the text, but notice, notice, notice the profound premium that Christ puts on the scriptures. He doesn't wag his finger in their face because they didn't believe the women. He doesn't scold them because the empty tomb didn't convince them. He doesn't even berate them for not believing his own words. Rather, he lovingly reprimands them because why? What reason did he give? They didn't believe the scriptures. That's why. They didn't believe what the scriptures said. God's word is the issue. What God has spoken in the sacred text, that is what matters. Put it this way, what God has spoken and revealed in his word, it itself, without any sort of outside verification to prove its authenticity, it itself is enough to believe everything it says because it is its own truth authority. My question is, in what areas of your life might you possibly be foolish and slow in heart to believe? We've all got blind spots. We've all got weaknesses. I mean, is there something that God has revealed in his word that you might not actually live as though it were true? Because you understand, when you get your Bible between your two elbows in the morning, the two most important questions of the day are, two most important prayers of your day are, Christ, show me who you are from the text. And two, help me now to live as though everything I read is true, because it is true. And when we live out what he has spoken, it is not a hindrance to our joy, it is the essence of our joy. But these men like us, they needed a little help. They needed a reminder of what God had spoken in the text because you understand this, get this now, seeing and savoring and beholding and enjoying the glory of Christ from the text is what you and I need, get this, for every single issue of life. So notice what the stranger does in verse 27. It's absolutely astonishing. And beginning with Moses, and from all the prophets, he interpreted for them. He explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There it is. There it is. That is what their faith needed. What they needed was a sermon. More than they needed to see the resurrected Christ with their physical eyes. More than that, they needed to see the glory of Christ from the pages of Scripture. I'm going to say something shocking to you. You understand our faith is not grounded in our experience. But what God has revealed in the text. And so what Christ did on that day on the road to Emmaus was preach two hours and 20 minutes that puts us at what time 
two hours and 20 minutes of now, I finished that sermon. Here we go. Okay, a sample of that sermon, okay? A sample of what Christ preached from Moses and the prophets. And when I'm done, when I'm done, in all seriousness, may our hearts burn with love and zeal to live for his glory. Here's the sermon. All good stories begin at the beginning, don't they? And after creation, Christ no doubt brought them to the garden and that marriage, that first marriage between Adam and Eve. And it would not surprise me in the least if he happened to point out to them that that first marriage was in fact a parable of Christ and the church. He preached it. But of course right there, and there's Genesis 3 following close on the heels of chapter 2. You see, the very same chapter in which paradise was lost is the very same chapter that paradise was promised again. Because in chapter 3, verse 15, God promised there that a Savior would emerge, that a Redeemer and Deliverer would come on the scene of human history and solve the dilemma of sin by crushing the head of the serpent. He preached that. And then he appears again. And Genesis 49, 10, in a prophecy about the 12 tribes, he gets to the tribe of Judah, and then he describes a king who comes from the line of Judah, a king to whom all the peoples of the earth would obey. He preached it. And then he appears again a thousand times over in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, graphically foreshadowing the Passover lambs slain for the sins of men. He preached it. And he appears again in Numbers 24, 17. A star from Jacob, a great king and conqueror who crushes through the foreheads of his enemies, it says. He preached it. We get a glimpse of him in Deuteronomy 18. A great prophet to come whose words were so sacred that depending on what you do with his words determines where you will spend eternity. He preached it. And no doubt, no question he preached from 2 Samuel 7. That a great king would come from David's line and rule forever. He preached it. And then Psalm 2 describes him as a son and Messiah and king who would crush the rebellious nations. And then Psalm 22, a tortured king who suffers and dies. You remember Psalm 22 verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's no coincidence. But then he's resurrected by the end of the psalm, and he's worshipped by the nations. Add to the list Psalm 45, Psalm 72, and Psalm 110, in which he is heralded as the great king according to the order of Melchizedek. He even shows up in Proverbs. He's in Proverbs, chapter 30. The son of God who rules the ends of the earth. He preached it. And then Isaiah, he's everywhere in Isaiah, just everywhere in Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, Emmanuel, God is with us, born from a virgin. Chapter 9, a child that comes from David's line, rules the throne of David. And Isaiah calls him wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Isaiah 11, he appears again. As a great king from David's line who single-handedly ends the reign of terror in the world. He preached it. And he appears again. 42, 49, 50, and 53. He appears as a suffering servant slain for the sins of men. 
Then he appears in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. And then Ezekiel 34 and 37. The Messiah appears as a great shepherd of the sheep who will rule a kingdom from Jerusalem. He preached it. And then, and then Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man will come to earth and be worshipped by the nations. And time would fail us if we talked about the minor prophets who majorly cared about the Messiah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the one, the eternal one, born in Bethlehem. Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 9, 10, and 12. A king pierced and bloody who comes again and rules the earth. And last but not least, Malachi chapter 3. The Lord will appear again at his temple and his coming will be like fire. He preached it. Two hours and 20 minutes of the most profound preaching you've ever heard in your life. And when it was all over, their eyes were opened. There it is. The Easter egg. And they turn and they face one another and they say, did not our hearts burn when he opened the scriptures to us on the way? Did, our, did not our hearts burn as he preached to us the sacred text? That's exactly what happened and that's all I want for you, little flock. That your hearts would burn not just on Resurrection Sunday, but every Sunday. In fact, every single day of your life that your hearts would burn as you behold the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ from the pages of sacred scripture. Because you see, we are a resurrection people who worship a resurrected king, who have a resurrection hope. And what that does, what that does, you understand, is give us the courage to engage a hostile world and tell them the most mind-blowing, beautifully wonderful news in the universe. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Oh Christ, to have heard that sermon. To have heard that sermon, text after text after text, unfolded and explained with absolute precision, precision not, not a falter, not a stutter, not a word out of place, hearing a glorious exposition of the entire Old Testament, seeing you put on display. Lord, we want our hearts to burn just like they did not with some mystical, weird fervency that only lasts for a little while. What we want is zeal, zeal to live for your glory. Help us now, Lord, as we sing, as we enjoy in response to what we have heard. May we experience a little bit of that burning zeal. In your matchless name.